So this over the years for me, my walk with Jesus has seen some of the most transformational growth over the summer months. Over the years for me, my walk, because I think of the disruption of the rhythms of normal life that we experience in the summer, my walk with him has grown. During a time that is typically thought of as vacation and rest from what is normal, we can grow. So I just want to start this morning by encouraging all of us that are present today to be alert, to be attentive to what Jesus might be doing in you and in your family this summer. He continues his good work in us through each season of the year. And I think there's something about this season for us who live in a climate that is often cold and not as hospitable to outdoor activities. This time of year, something unique can happen in us. So let's pray together for that, that God's spirit would work in each one of us and that we would hear him through his word this morning. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, thank you for this church family. Thank you that we can gather together on this lawn and online to be with you together. Lord, I know that you are at work in each one of us this morning. I pray that you would stir in our hearts. As we hear your word, would you teach each one of us what it is that you have for us today? Would you help us to be attentive to your movement within our soul as we hear your word? Lord, make it powerful and renewing to us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we worship this summer, we're going to continue to look at the Psalms together. The Psalms are the prayer book of God's people that we find in the Bible. God's people have learned how to pray, how to worship, how to praise and confess and lament and be glad in the Psalms. Some of the most beautiful pictures that we have in the scriptures of trust and faith and raw and honest emotions are found in the Psalms. When we come to these songs and these prayers, we get glimpses of who God is and what it looks like to live and walk with him in an interactive relationship. This morning, we're going to dwell on Psalm 138 together. So if you have your Bible or an app, you can turn to that, Psalm 138. And Psalm 138 is also the psalm for today in our Bible reading plan that many of us are doing this year together. We're reading through the Psalms and the New Testament together. And if you haven't gotten one of those plans yet and you'd like to join us, we actually do have some over on the table by the tree over here. You could grab it after the service. And I would encourage you, if you haven't started it yet and you want to do that, just jump in on the date that we're on. Don't feel like you need to do catch-up work at all. That's, that's not what it's about. It's not about checking the box that you've completed it but about connecting with Jesus. So this psalm, Psalm 138, as with many psalms, was written by David. It gives us a window into his prayer life. It shows us how he interacted with God, whom he called his shepherd. But who was David? Who was this man who God's Spirit used to write so many songs and so many prayers? Briefly, David was Israel's second king after Saul. From a human perspective, he was an unlikely choice for a king. When Samuel the prophet, who had been sent by God to anoint a new king, saw David's older brother, he initially thought that his older brother, one of his older brothers, was going to be king, evidently because of his age and because how he looked. But God said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, 
because I have rejected him, saying, I have not chosen one of these older brothers to be king. God goes on to say, this is in 1 Samuel 16, he says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In the end, God made it clear to Samuel that David was his choice for king of his people. David, the youngest among his brothers, who had just been tending sheep in the fields, was anointed as Saul's eventual replacement, as king of Israel. And the scriptures say of David at that moment, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. He was full of the spirit from that day forward. David was the least likely choice from a human perspective. But because of God's choosing and anointing, he goes on to be a military leader, a king, and a recipient of some unique covenantal promises that one of his descendants would reign forever and ever. And we know now, as we read our New Testaments, that that descendant is Jesus. In the New Testament, Jesus is sometimes called the son of David, and that's in recognition of this covenant promise and Jesus reigning after David's lineage. And yes, David was the young man of legend and history who took five stones and a sling up against a gigantic warrior because of his trust in the God of the universe. But David's life wasn't always faithful to God. He was an imperfect, sinful man. Among other things, he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then intentionally put her husband, Uriah, on the front line of a battle where he was sure to be killed. David was a real human being, like us. He had moments of trusting and obeying God and other moments of distrust and disobedience. His life is an example for all of us of God's faithfulness to his people and to his name. It's David's real and broken humanity, both his courageous trust in God and his sinful rebellion that make the Psalms so helpful for us today in our own lives. They come to us through real, lived, messy human experience. The ups and the downs of human experience, not just some idealized, fantasized life that doesn't deal with struggle or difficulty or pain. So with that background in mind, we can hear this prayer this morning as coming from a real human being to his real, living, present God. I'm going to read Psalm 138 now. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake 
the work of your hands. So David's prayer in Psalm 138 can be broken down into three different sections. First, David's looking backwards at who God is and what God has done. Then he looks forward with a future-oriented confidence. And finally, he ends with a call for help in his present life circumstances. It's a psalm of remembering and recollection, of joyful anticipation of God's action and victory in the world, and of present help right now in times of trouble. This is a psalm of joy-inspired resistance of evil and of all who oppose God's rule over his good creation. In the first three verses, David wholeheartedly praises and thanks God for whom he is and for what he has done in the past. Worship overflows and bursts forth from David into song as he remembers God's steadfast love to him, his faithfulness to him, his word to him, which is his promises that he made to him. Remember, as we just got done with the book of 1 John, we got to that amazing sentence in 1 John that says, God is love. God's very nature is love. He's self-giving, always giving for the good of others, both within himself, within the Trinity, and also within the world to us. Remember, we used a picture of a divine dance of love in which the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are revolving around each other in this dance, delighting in each other, giving and doing what is good for the other all the time. And we talked about that God has been doing that forever and ever and ever because that's who God is. He cannot help but love all the time. And it's inclusion in that divine dance of love that is available for each of us in Jesus. We can be included in that divine dance. Instead of a life in which we insist that others revolve around us, meeting our needs, seeking our good, we can live a life of blessing and love for other people because the Holy Spirit is at work within us. We can be included in this divine dance through Jesus and through the power of his spirit. We learn that we don't truly get what we want by demanding it from other people, by grasping for it in some way, but by increasingly centering our life on Christ and on his ways. That is the good life, to be invited into and join in on this divine dance of love. And as we increasingly experience this, this new and eternal way of living, we realize what we've been missing out on in some very unique ways. We'll grow in our knowledge and in our experience of God's love, and that love will then flow out of us into other people's lives around us. It will flow out of us in worship to God like we see David doing in this psalm. Knowing God more and more, deeper and deeper, will change the way we think about our life and the way we live. For example, it will change the way that we walk into a room. When we walk into a room full of people, it will even change that. Have you ever thought about that? How do you walk into a room? A pastor of mine from a different season of life once made an offhand comment about what it looks like to walk into a room full of God's spirit. And it deeply affected me to this day. 
So there are two ways to walk into a room of people. One is to walk in and immediately look for those you know, those who bring you joy, those who make you feel comfortable, and those who make you feel accepted, and to go to those people. And in a lot of ways, that's a really good thing, to be with friends, to be with those who know you. But there's another way of walking into a room. The other way is to walk into a room and look for those who don't seem to belong yet. To look for those who don't have a circle around them of other people, who need to be loved and accepted and blessed. That's the second way of walking into a room. Because of God's steadfast love and faithfulness to each one of us, we can love in that way. We know that we have our deepest needs met by our loving Heavenly Father. And so human beings are off the hook. They don't need to meet those deepest needs because they can't actually do that for us. God is the one who meets those. And that truth and that fact, as it gets within us and into our soul and heart, changes even how we walk into a room of people that we don't know. We're free to love and enjoy not because we need people to revolve around us in some way, but because as recipients of God's love and faithfulness, we truly delight in other people and want to share that same love for them. For David in this psalm, it's looking back and remembering who God is and what God has done that fills him with such praise, that fills him with such worship. He says, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. When David was saying that, he likely had in mind the unique covenantal promises that I mentioned earlier. Promises that he and his people would have a place to live and grow. Promise that he would have a descendant that would come after him who would rule forever and ever. This descendant king. To those promises to David, God was always and continually faithful. Even when David faltered and sinned even when David turned his back. God answered him. God answered him when he called. And even though David didn't personally see the fulfillment of all that God had promised in his own life, he was confident that God heard his cries and he actually experienced, in his lived experience with God, God answering him and strengthening his soul, leading him as a shepherd leads sheep strengthening his soul in the midst of difficult circumstances. And it's true for us today. God is faithful to the promises that he has made to us, especially in the gospel of Jesus that we read about in his word. Even when we falter, even when our heart grows cold, and we're not excited to trust and obey. Even in those moments, he is faithful to us in the gospel of Jesus. As we take time to remember those promises, to remember the gospel, to preach it to ourselves, our heart, like David's heart, will erupt in praise. It will erupt in worship. Worship even among the so-called gods. Did you notice that in there, verse 1? David says he worshipped before the gods. He was most likely thinking of the gods and the idols of the surrounding nations. Another way of saying what he said here is to say, in the sight of and in the scorn of the idols of the nations who are powerless to intervene, 
powerless to stop me. I will sing your praise, my God and my King. Listen to how David described these idols. If you turn back just three Psalms to Psalm 135, starting in verse 15, he says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there breath in their mouth. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So how did David respond to the glare of these idols? He didn't use his energy protesting them, addressing them directly at all. He didn't give them the respect of acknowledgement. No, he confronted the idols by wholeheartedly worshiping the true and living God. The God who is not an invention of human ingenuity or under human control. Neither human hands or mind created God. The truth is God has no competitors. There is no one who is a threat to God. He is Lord. He has all authority so that he only does what he pleases. No one can force their will upon him. Not only does he have all authority, but he has all power. So no one can overpower him with strength that is beyond his and make him do what he does not want. That is why David was able to continue to worship him, even among the gods and the idols of the surrounding nations. He knows who God is, and he knows that God has no equal. His response to opposition in this moment is similar to what we read of other characters in our scriptures. Think of Daniel and his friends in Babylon, for example. They resisted Babylon's ways, refusing to worship a golden image and then facing a fiery furnace and continuing to worship God even when threatened with a lion's den. Extreme circumstances for them. But the truth is, God's people have always worshipped him in the midst of other so-called gods and idols. So we, right now, need not be alarmed or feel threatened when we find ourselves doing the very same thing. David and God's people throughout history are an example for us to follow when we're faced with our own version of what David, David faced. Some of us here have experienced worshiping Jesus in the midst of a physical idol, or maybe among people who were overtly worshiping something or someone else. I had that experience a couple years ago when I was on a campus, college campus in Canada. I was in a multi-faith center that our group had reserved, the navigators on campus had reserved, and I was with other followers of Jesus praying out loud to him and reading scriptures of his work, work in the world. We thought we were going to be alone, and we started out alone, but suddenly as we were praying and our eyes were closed and we were facing out a window so we could see outside, we realized that other people had come in around us. And those other people started praying out loud as well, not to Jesus, but to another so-called God. In that moment, there was no need for conflict or alarm, but only continued worship of Jesus. It felt to us at the time like the only right thing to do continue to worship him, continue to pray to him, continue to acknowledge his lordship over all things. So we continued in prayer and in reading scripture. But that experience is pretty unique. I hadn't had it before in my life, and I don't anticipating having it again anytime soon. 
But the truth is, we all do live among other worldviews and idols who vie for our attention and our allegiance. These idols may not have the name of a god, but they are worshipped and served like a god. They require our devotion like a god. I'm thinking of things like money or possessions or power or relationships or security and the approval of others. The things in themselves are not bad. It's when they become a god that they become bad and evil. The thing that all of those idols have in common is that they steal the life that God intends for us to have and they are powerless to give us the life that we desire from them. They have no eyes to see or ears to hear or mouths to speak. They are the invention of human beings. But how do the idols of our own making steal life from us? How could money that we make steal life from us, for example, because we willingly give our life over to them. The idols are powerful because in our brokenness, we allow them to have power. We become devoted to them with our time, our attention, our financial resources, our energy. We figuratively bow to them in reverence and in awe. We allow ourselves to be colonized and shaped by these gods and the ways of the world. So what are we to do? How do we resist these idols? Our response needs to be the same as to any other so-called God. We reject them, first of all. We turn away from them. And instead, we connect with, we enjoy, we worship the true and living God. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon put it when he was commenting on this verse about how to respond to idols and ideas that set themselves up against the gospel. He said this, Bitterness is forbidden, and controversy is apt to advertise the heresy. The very best method is to go on personally worshiping the Lord with unvarying zeal, singing with heart and voice his royal praises. Then he goes on, Praising and singing are our armor against the idolatries, our comfort under the depression caused by insolent attacks upon the truth, and our weapons for defending the gospel. What are we to do? How do we resist? We trust him. We focus on him. We depend on him and we sing to him. We preach the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves of who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus. And as we're increasingly captivated with God and the gospel of Jesus, the power and influence of those idols and other gods falls away. David continues his prayer in verse 4, shifting from this backward look at what God has done for him to looking forward to a certain future. He prays, all the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. This is a beautiful picture of all powers, all those in authority throughout the entire earth, hearing God's word, 
recognizing God's greatness and supreme glory, and in turn giving him thankful, worshipful praise. There's a sense in what David prays that when these kings of the earth see and get a glimpse of how glorious God is, they won't be able to help but worship. It's not that they're forced to worship, but they're compelled to worship by what they see when they see God. Like we are compelled to delight in beauty that we see in creation. You can imagine a bald eagle flying overhead or an apple tree in full bloom or a still lake on a summer morning. No one has to force us to delight in those things. When our eyes see them, we do. It just comes out of us. That's what these kings will be doing when they see the glory and the greatness of God that David is anticipating. They'll see that God's glory pales, their glory pales in comparison to God's glory and who God is, and they will worship him, the true king of all things. But that was not what David was experiencing when he prayed this. It is not what we experience right now today here. But David was confident. He was assured that the true and living God would indeed bring to pass all that he had promised, that one day the earth really would be full of the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And that victory of God over all other powers is certain because it doesn't come from us. It's certain becomes because it comes not as a result of human strength, but as a result of God's own doing, of God's own intervention as he renews and redeems all of his good creation. So as followers of Jesus, we wait. We joyfully anticipate the good that God will continue to do in each of us and in this world. Even though our present circumstances, all in authority, do not worship him, we trust that one day, in and through Jesus, all things will be set right. Revelation 21 anticipates this renewal. It says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. David then ends his prayer by turning from this future focus on God's certain victory over all things to God's present care for him right now. Verse 7 says, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. That sounds a lot like Psalm 23, doesn't it? When David says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David's mind is full of a vivid image of God extending his hand and shielding him from his enemies and from whoever would hurt him, try to harm him. He continues in verse 8, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. That is a promise that when depended on, will change us in how we experience the ups and the downs of life. It will transform our anxious, fearful thoughts into trusting thoughts, assured of the Lord's meticulous care for all that we need. This promise is certain, again, because it doesn't depend upon us, but on God to fulfill it. 
each one of us who belongs to Jesus by faith can pray it along with David. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. When our faith feels weak, we can pray, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. When you're not sure if you're going to get through the day or the next hour, we can pray, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. When you're not sure what to do or where to go, the path does not look clear before you, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. With each and every single thing, every interaction, every unwelcome interruption, every event that could happen, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. What is this purpose for you and for me that he will bring to pass? Isn't it to heal us? Isn't it to transform us into the image of God? That we would increasingly grow in his love and his power and his likeness, that we would love him and enjoy him and in turn glorify him as we do so. Our Bible reading plans this week through 2 Corinthians capture this purpose so beautifully. This is 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And here, 1 Corinthians 15, 49, it says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Church, we can be confident that God is doing just that, and he will continue to do that. How would your life be different if you were able to believe that the Lord will fulfill his purpose for you? What if you could receive each and everything that comes to you today as for your healing, as for your good? That doesn't mean that we're going to like each thing that comes to us or that life will be easy all the time. David just acknowledged the trouble that he was walking in. But it would mean that we could live through the challenges and the stresses and the fears without letting them control us. Why? Because God is truly with you. He will fulfill his purpose for you. This prayer and David's life, the entirety of scripture, and the experience of God's people throughout history point to that reality that so many of us long for in our daily lives. Jesus opened a way for us to be full of the Holy Spirit and to continually live in God's presence. Every day of our life, we can be with him in his presence. God, the Lord of all things, our creator and sustainer, is near to us right now, throughout our day, and tomorrow when we wake up. He is with us, near to us. He did not create the world, winding it up, and then leave it, letting it just unwind. He is really and truly present, taking care of us, shielding us, renewing us. Like David, we can worship him, knowing that in our past, he's been working and he's been with us. Knowing that in our future, he will be working and he will be with us. And knowing that in our present, he is working and he is with us. 
he will fulfill his purpose for us. His steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. God, you have called us to a joyful resistance through our worship and enjoyment of you. We know through your word and through your promises that you have been working, you will work, and you are working right now. Lord, we aren't always aware, though, of what you're doing. So would you give us eyes to see your mercies, that with truly thankful hearts we could give you praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, would we be able to worship you and enjoy you. Lord, thank you for the gospel of Jesus and how that changes everything. Give us confidence that you will fulfill your purpose for us. In your name, amen.